0: Hi there, and welcome to Pod Rocket, a podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Tried for free at logrocket.com today. My name is Paul, and joined with us is the creator of Builder.io, Steve Sewell. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. We're going to be talking about Quick 1.0 and a little bit, of course, about some AI mix ins and what's going on in the field and how we can accelerate our lives and workflows with the tools of today. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Could you talk about how you stepped into the role of being CEO and the co-founder of Builder.io?
1: Yeah, I'll try and keep it brief. I could probably talk forever about this. But the high level of it was, so at the last company I worked at, a company called ShopStyle, they are an e-commerce business. They do half a billion dollars in GMVs. So we're driving a lot of purchases of e-commerce products across different retailers. They, like, they do a crawl operation, and then you can shop a bunch of different stores in one place. And way back in the day, they were on this really monolithic kind of legacy Java stack. We modernized them and brought them what people now call headless, quote-unquote, like headless commerce. Backend, except from the front end. The front end can be like a PWA, so it can feel totally native and never reload the page when you're on mobile. And we learned a lot in kind of changing the tech stack. Two huge things. First one was we moved to AngularJS and performance for AngularJS for the first page load was brutally slow. And certain businesses like e-commerce need a really fast page load for that initial page. It makes a big difference on how many people will actually purchase things. And it was something that we didn't really properly account for the importance of. We wanted every transition and page navigation after that to be fast, to feel like a native app on mobile. But that first one was very hard to do in this kind of modern JavaScript-heavy setup. The second thing we learned was for an e-commerce business, generally speaking, those are marketing-driven businesses, and a marketing team needs to run tests and change content all the time. Every week, the decoupling of front and back end was really great for team structure and our ability to ship quickly and a lot of really good stuff on the engineering side. But there was not really a good solution for managing all the content of the front end. Specifically, we had cases where we started hooking ShopStyle up to a headless CMS. And then we said, hey, marketing team, you can edit like the title of this page. And they're like, great. Now I want to rearrange the page. I want to add a second button. It should have a new link. And they would go into all these details of the new things. We're like, wait, 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 no. Headless CMS means we tell you what you can change and anything else you still need engineering tickets for. That got crazy and tedious because we needed a lot of tickets. We needed to change things all the time. And eventually got crazy to the point where our backlogs were so long that the marketing team went and they were trying to figure out how can we make it so that they can get a page update they've been asking for forever on the site without having to depend on the engineers. And so what they did is they went to Webflow, like a drag and drop, no code thing. They built out this page they've been asking for forever totally on their own. Doesn't take any engineering, just drag, drop, done. Webflow is pretty great in that it actually generates pretty high quality code. And so just HTML, CSS, pretty much just like a developer would have written. And they brought that to us and said, hey, we made this new page. Can you please just copy-paste it onto this Angular site? And I loved the intent behind it, but the unfortunate part was these tools don't really connect to whatever tech stack you have. We have an Angular JS site, not just generic HTML CSS, which is a difference. Um, we have a custom backend. We have components we've already written that should be used for this, these Angular components that should be part of this UI. And eventually, we really were like wrestling with what, they need is that drag and drop that you can get for these kind of SMB-oriented tools. But what the engineering needs is actual Angular code with Angular components. And that kind of led to the idea of what if, like, what if you could have a drag and drop GUI? Because these things have gotten a lot better recently. They have gotten very clean in terms of the code they can produce and generate. What if you could just deliver that over an API and connect to any tech stack? That kind of led to the idea of, wow, that would have removed all this horrible backlog that our developers don't want to do because it's boring, tedious stuff. And so that's where I quit my job and built out the first version of Builder, which was like, okay, how do you design like an API interface for React components, or Angular components? So you can deliver JSON over the wire, provide a drag-and-drop interface in the visual editor, and allow people to take those Lego blocks you have, which components are supposed to be, these drag-and-drop pieces, and combine them in all kinds of new ways and just hit publish and make it go live. And that's how we got into Builder, and that led to a whole lot of really awesome stuff But it remains that there was one last challenge we were running into, which is we see that by default, people tend to see a drag and drop interface and they go, oh, I've seen Microsoft front page, or I've seen Dreamweaver. I've seen how these can generate really messed up code that's really bad for performance and all this stuff. And, oh yeah. So we went crazy on making sure that what we outputted was extremely high performance. All of the images, we do crazy stuff. So like when you make something in Builder, we actually will load up that page in Puppeteer And we will look at the exact dimensions of all the images used at all screen sizes. And we will find the exact compressed image formats that you need. We will find the exact image sizes and add a whole bunch of HTML attributes so the browser will load exactly the right size and format for exactly the type of browser and screen dimensions you're using. All kinds of stuff that even with modern image components, developers don't usually do because uh, it's actually very manual. You have to know information that you don't know at the time of coding. Uh, and all sorts of crazy stuff, how we deliver the content from the edge and blah, blah, blah. So we would start telling people, hey, this is super duper high performance. This is the best way. And it's often on average can generate a higher performance output than your average developer would code up because there's all this nuances that we don't have time to do day to day as developers that we can automate with this type of system. But what people would do is they plug builder into their mega giant react app that's made with create react app. And it would probably already score like a five out of a hundred on Google's Pagebit Insights or Lighthouse. And they'd plug Builder in and it would go from five to six. And they're like, the whole page I made in Builder, why is it not fast? And so we would look at it and be like, this is a massive site. Just by adding some stuff from Builder and removing a few divs does not remove the gigantic amount of other issues you already have, which are, they don't take up screen real estate on the page, but they're way more impactful than just the things that you see. It's this massive amount of third-party scripts. It's a massive amount of third, first-party code. It was just all this, for lack of a better term, junk that's not needed is right there in the browser. and We can't do anything about it without completely suggesting to change your whole stack. Eventually, this actually became such an important thing for us to try and figure out how to solve on behalf of our customers because they would do- adopt us with performance so heavily in mind that we were trying to be like, okay, let's start with creating one website. Let's make our website fast. And so I was doing all these tests of making our website as fast as humanly possible. It was using React and a modern React framework over the top of it. So server-side rendering, static generation, all that. And I was playing with it like crazy. And I was getting it to about 60 out of 100 for mobile, which is way better than average, but it's still yellow for Lighthouse. It's not green. We wanted green. And I was going crazy and I was going deeper on image optimization and font optimization, all this weird nuanced stuff. And so I decided to do what I just call hack and slashing, which is when I'm really desperate and I need to fix something, I don't know how, I just start deleting huge swaths of code. I just go crazy deleting. and It's almost like a get bisect. Let me delete things until I find the specific thing that once I delete that, the score goes up. And I tried everything and it was all like death by a thousand cuts. If I deleted 30%, we got 30% faster. If I deleted 50%, we got 50% faster, but nothing was different than anything else until I went super hacky, and I just deleted all the scripts tags, even the React script and the framework script. So basically, deliver the page with no JavaScript. And at this point, I would have been happy with two points, but the score shot to 100. (laughs) Like, as soon as the JavaScript was just gone, it made sense. You're just delivering optimal HTML, CSS, and images over the wire, and there's nothing else to download and parse and execute before that page is, quote-unquote, done loading. And that's where it was a bit of like, huh. And I would add the scripts back and I would see how Lighthouse would punish us. It's downloading so much, it's executing so much, it's parsing so much, there's a lot happening. Take it off again, and it's gone again. And I was like, wow, maybe I should have known this. Like maybe we were right with PHP the whole time and we should have never done this whole modern front end stuff. But I couldn't live with that either because components are so elegant and not worrying about these server client boundaries like you used to and using jQuery, which is very difficult for complex things like our drag and drop editor. I couldn't live with that. So we started experimenting with, can we do some kind of custom compilation output where we generate pure HTML and just tiny fragments of JS? Like, why are we re-downloading the whole page in a JavaScript format and re-executing it all and binding, doing all these things for, builder pages are often pretty static. Our homepage is a homepage, that images and text and buttons, it didn't need to have a lot of JavaScript on it for what the purpose it served And while I was doing that and I was having trouble finding exactly the right way to do it that we think could scale well and fit a variety of use cases, I ran into Mishko, who was still on the Angular team looking to move on and find his next thing to do. And he's like, hey, I have this new framework where I found a way to write components just like you always do. But when they load in the browser, zero JavaScript needs to load at all. Actually, less than a kilobyte, this bootloader, which we could talk about. And then you can make applications are huge and complex, but they never have this hydration problem. You just deliver HTML to the browser. At the time I learned later that he was actually having trouble getting people to realize why this mattered. <laughs> people didn't seem to care that much. And because I had done all this exhaustive testing, I was like, oh my goodness, that is exactly what we and everybody needs. And the way he had solved it and with his experience, he made AngularJS and Angular. He, he's experienced the problems and the ways to approach these things and tried so many things. That's where I'm like, okay, we need to develop out this framework so that we can use it. And we can recommend it to those who have this problem When paired with Builder, suddenly Builder plus Quick was just 100 out of 100. Any site, any complexity, everything was insanely fast, perfect. And we realized it's a good way for people to learn about the fact that we exist in our platform too.
0: So when you embarked on the journey of wanting to make an API interface for, let's say, a React component right on Builder, was that sort of your first foray into the depths of the React library and how those DOM fundamentals are tied together?
1: So yes and no. No in the sense that back before I started using AngularJS, I was actually making my own framework that was a layer on top of Backbone, trying to add, like, kind of reactive systems on top of backbone because we were using backbone for prior projects not really good at the view layer so it was getting really gnarly on that and i actually used reactive for a little while and there's some similarities and i liked it but there's some parts i didn't like so i made my own template system and went crazy on it eventually realized that i was actually just rebuilding or or reinventing angular js just in a worse way so we started adopting angular and funny enough when i started doing these experiments for pure HTML output from what we've created for the things in Builder and then using minimal JS, I was very poorly creating some type of thing like Quick, just a lot worse than Mishiko had with Quick in a lot of ways. And so it definitely had messed with some of this wacky, gnarly stuff before. But the big difference for me that kept breaking my brain a lot was that idea of how we ship it over an API. Like, what does that even look like? Are we shipping JavaScript code that looks like React to create elements, Are we shipping uncompiled code like JSX? What would that look like? Are we shipping JSON? And that took a lot of trial and error to actually realize that JSON is definitely the way to go.
0: Totally. So would you recommend JSON as a universal go-to if you're trying to like serialize a concept and send it over the wire? I feel like it's always served me pretty well. It sounds like if you can do a React component, that's like the pinnacle in my head. Curious on your thoughts.
1: Yes. So, this is a fantastic question. So, 100% yes, with some like nuances worth noting. So, yeah, I think the serialization format that's best for this is JSON. Now, what that requires though is you need a way to create and edit the JSON and doing it as JSON. Text is a huge pain. (laughs) So you don't want to write JSON from scratch that represents like dynamic components. Now, it's worth noting, too, though, that I was talking to some engineers at Meta recently, and within the React org, there actually is this whole project called Blocks, I think it's called, and they also do the same thing, and it solves a different problem. The problem it solves for them, and they actually handwrite this code, and I'll explain how that works in a project we have works similar. So, they have a problem, which is their native apps that use React Native. Unlike the web, they don't just magically update to the latest versions. They can push a new version of the React app that has Instagram may want to add a new promotion for something for influencers. And normally you'd have to submit the code to Apple, and then Apple reviews it, and then some people will update it immediately, but not everybody. <laughs> and so it's really annoying. And customers of Builder have the same problem too. And they're like, how do we get new things, new components on the device without code being able to be updated. And yes, there are some arguably hacky solutions, at least at times, for like hot deploying, hot swapping code. That is not something that Meta is using. I didn't ask why, I'm sure there's a variety of reasons. It's not something a lot of our customers are using. So instead, they have this thing called blocks where they can write in Python or PHP, if I recall. Essentially what looks like JSX, but turns into JSON and delivers to the device is JSON. And in the same way as Builder, a component can read the JSON and dynamically render what they want. So this engineer was showing me this new promotion they added to the Instagram app. And they were like, this code doesn't exist in the phone. This was written in Python, because Instagram's backend is Python, if I remember him correctly. And it's actually sent over and rendered dynamically, which is really cool. Uh, They have a format, and we realized we needed one too. So we made a project called Mitosis, where... The idea was very similar to what Meta realized. It's funny that we developed these things in parallel without having any knowledge of each other doing these things and learned about it and had some conversations with their engineers later. But basically, we were like, okay, what if we made a JSX equivalent of this JSON? Because the JSON does look a lot like the VDOM format of React, which really is what the JSX does. It's like it has a tag, things have properties, things have children. And so we made this thing called mitosis where we can two-way compile. We can turn the JSON to JSX and the JSX to JSON. So it looks like you're writing a React component. It compiles to JSON. It really has the same React format, except a couple additional constraints. There's some things that JSON can't represent that you can do in React, like really dynamic stuff. And what was cool about that is we realized that because we don't just support React, like the builder JSON can render identically to Vue and Quick and Svelte and SolidJS, and actually no framework, it could just produce HTML for your Rails website, your Laravel website or whatever. We were like, wait a second, we could use this to actually write the JSON as JSX and then output components to all these things. And now Mitosis is its own project built on the same kind of tech, which allows people to, if you have a use case like us, let's say you are a library offer. Let's say LogRocket needs to provide UI components, but your customers use React and Vue and all these things. You could actually use Mitosis to write essentially React components, but compile them out to Vue components, etc. Everything you install in Builder is actually generated code from this mitosis, which is from the JSON, which is also the same thing you get over our APIs. I know it's a little bit weird and abstract and multilayered and trippy, but yeah, it's actually fascinating the properties you get when you can turn JSON to React and, and back.
0: So when you're able to turn JSON into React, does this have anything to do with the way that Quick operates? I'd love to get into that. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners that this podcast is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket offers session replay issue tracking, and product analytics for your full stack to help you quickly surface and solve impactful issues affecting your user experience. With LogRocket, you can find and solve issues faster and improve conversion and adoption so you can spend more time building a better product and less time debugging. So head over to LogRocket.com to try it for free today. We did have Mishko on the LogRocket podcast. He was on PodRocket twice, actually, and we've gone over a little bit about the point of Quick. If you could really, <laughs> I, I, I didn't mean to double say it here, but if you could really quickly summarize for us, what is Quick for people tuning in for the first time? And then why do, why is JSON in, in the conversation here?
1: Yes. Now, these are all great questions. So let's start with Quick. The goal of Quick is to deliver instantly on applications. So as opposed to the current model today that we use, which we call hydration, which is you render an application or a page on a server. You then transfer that to the browser via HTML, but the HTML is actually just a facade. It doesn't actually work. It doesn't do anything. It just gives you something to look at while your actual application downloads, reruns, and then binds to the HTML. And now it's actually usable HTML. So that's hydration. And that's where we've noticed, particularly for people who Initial page load matters a lot. Basically, everybody wants a fast loading site. Everybody's customers want a fast loading site. I hate using slow websites on my phone. Funny enough, I live in San Francisco. I live in a part of San Francisco that has terrible signal. I get like barely 3G (laughs) and most websites just don't even work at home. So if my Wi-Fi isn't working or I step outside to walk my dog, which I do multiple times a day, most of the internet just doesn't work. And we often forget that's the case for most of the world. I don't care if you're in San Francisco or if you're in Colombia or you're in Eastern Europe, you may or may not have a fast connection all the time. You may be on a bus or on a subway or stuff like that. And every single time that, let's take e-commerce for an example, every single time that a page takes more additional, I can't remember, it's like 100 milliseconds to load. If I recall correctly, it was Amazon found that they were losing like 1% in profits. Forgive me for not remembering the exact stat. Here, we actually have it on our site. So many people have done these stats. But basically, you're losing a major amount of money when you make these pages take too long to load. And the faster they load, the more your bounce goes down, the more your conversions go up, which means just money goes up. So slow site, less money, fast site, more money, right? And that's quite important to businesses. And so with Quick, the idea is how do we skip that hydration step? And the idea here, which was borrowed from a framework internally used at Google called Wiz, which powers Google search, Gmail, I think Google photos, I forget the exact list, but they developed this technique that's really cool, which is you send HTML to the browser and in the HTML, any DOM events, any like points of interactivity actually have a serialized URL in the HTML. So imagine you have a button. And the button will have a property, I think it's called JS colon action, or I think they mangle this to, to minify it. But the value of the attribute, so say it's called like js action equals. And it'll be a path to a URL. It'll be like to probably some funky hash.js. And that dot JS never needs to actually fetch or run unless you actually click on that button. And so what they do is they actually have a bootloader or a loader on the page that the first thing it does is it looks in your Google search results and it finds all those attributes. You could do one quick query selector all and find all the possible URLs that may need to execute on this page. What they will then do is they'll fetch those. So they're in the cache. They're still not executing, which is the majority of the problem that we're trying to avoid is executing this JS. And what they can do is as soon as you click, they can then execute that one file. What that means is instead of when you load, let's take Google search. If Google search slowed down by 100 milliseconds, I think they would lose billions of dollars or something like that. So these things are important at that scale, but they're important at any scale. It's just easier to quantify it really large scale when you're talking insane amounts of traffic and money. But basically they discovered that this works extremely well to make your website just as fast as if it was pure HTML, but instantly interactive. And that's the point of Quick. But the idea of Quick is to do it in an open way, so fully open source. And second, with a modern developer experience. Wiz today, from what I understand, is not simple and easy to use like React and JSX it uses a very different, a little bit more legacy format. The idea is, what if it, you felt like you were writing React, but it actually loaded just absurdly fast, both at the page load point and at the point of interactivity? And so Quick wants you to have these instant-on applications at any scale. So that even if you're at the scale of Amazon, it doesn't matter. Or the scale of Google, it doesn't matter. Like you may have notice that when you go to Google search results, they have a seemingly infinite number of interactive widgets. You search movies, there's a movies widget. You search something about a location, there's a map and there's business stuff. There's a million different widgets that could load on these pages. Because of this format, it doesn't matter. They could have infinite engineers making infinite widgets. If it's not delivered on that page, it's not running. If it's not interacted with, it's not executed or even parsed. And that's how you achieve what we're looking for, which is essentially um, O1 scalability. So regardless of the complexity of your site, the page loads just as fast the amount of javascript that loads on that page and executes the minute it loads is literally just less than a kilobyte it's just that loader and as you interact you're only loading tiny little pieces and that's the idea of quick where the json comes in is in a couple areas so number one builder supported a quick sdk out of the gates because of this json format we use in Mitosis. It was as easy as just generating a quick SDK. In Mitosis, you write a, a simple generator. These are often just one file. And you write the generator once. And now anything we've ever written in Builder supports Quick. Awesome. So that took a minute. That was great. But the second thing that's interesting here is when you skip hydration, you can actually go deeper into creating extremely high speed and dynamic experiences. So a lot of things that we find start to get complicated and not performance for React at scale, is things like delivering personalized results and components or running A B tests. Traditionally, you're actually going to have to deliver these in a way that's very hard to do performantly. It could be simple when it's in a very simple use case. You use something like Vercel or Netlify, and you have two different branches, and you're A B testing a whole separate version of the site, one against the other. That's easy. But when it comes to e-commerce, that just doesn't work. Generally speaking, the type of A-B test you're running day-to-day is these two images against these two images, or these two page layouts against these two. Or let's also run personalized results. At ShopStyle, it's very important that if you previously shopped menswear products, when you get to the homepage, you get menswear products. Promotions for menswear products, examples of menswear products, because you're not buying women's wear, so you shouldn't see it. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of screen real estate. There's a lot of fancy tricks we can do to di- deliver these dynamic bits from the edge, etc. And JSON's what describes that. But when you can turn those things to pure HTML, you can actually now run an infinite amount of personalized variations or A-B tests without any cost. And if you didn't use JSON for this, you'd actually have to have developers hard coding all these variations. And nobody has time to write a hundred different versions of the same component, React Quick or otherwise, but what we do have time to do is use a GUI. You go into Builder and you hit Duplicate, and you now make the mentor version, hit Publish, and you hit Duplicate, and in a few clicks, you've just made a thousand versions of a component, and that's easy. Delivered over an API, it solves this problem where developers just want to write clean code that looks and feels like today's React, but delivers insanely fast like quick does and you want your other team members who need to make changes to all the stuff to just change it you don't have to worry about it drag drop change it you put the rules in place like you're only allowed to use your design system components or whatever but otherwise you sleep at night knowing your code's clean and your marketing team can just market everybody's happy everything's fast and everything's easy
0: can you talk to me a little bit about speculative fetching or speculative loading of components cuz i think that's something a lot of people might look at it and they go, what if it speculates incorrectly? And what's it speculating about? Yes. Is it speculating about what little bits to load when it slices and dices up my JavaScript? And yeah, let's get into that a little bit.
1: Like any good engineer, everybody's a little bit wary of magic optimization, right? They're like, oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I want to know exactly what's happening. And so let me describe how this works and why it works. Going back to the example of, okay, when a quick page loads, it's just pure HTML. In the HTML is all of these paths to JavaScript files, and the question now becomes: So first, our compiler already, in a very deterministic way, will shred your components into small files. Um, I should point out an important part of this concept, which we call resumability, compared to what we call hydration, is like a replay or replayability. You're rerunning your entire page just to make it interactive with quick you're resuming you serialize to html you deliver it and then you just pick up where you left off you could actually take a quick page and grab the html open up a new browser and paste it and continue where you left off regardless of what the state was like you load up a counter app you click the button a few times now it's at seven now you paste that to another browser window it picks up on seven it could continue it's a pretty interesting property but anyway so what happens when you send this html with all the javascript urls is there's really three ways that you can optimize this. One is you just don't, you don't prefetch anything. And when you click a button at that time, it fetches the JavaScript and runs it. That works okay and it's shockingly fast because the JavaScript is very small, but you run into issues of what you don't want is you're on a bus, the bus goes under a tunnel, and now the application just doesn't work because it can't fetch that piece. I forget, there's a name for this, but basically you want to have this continuity. You do want things to continue to work and you don't want to always need a network at every moment. So you can actually have your network drop off for a minute and the application or the site still works. The next thing you could do is what Google does and they're adamant that it's the right way and it is a really effective way is just prefetch everything because fetching JavaScript is not nearly as expensive as parsing and executing it. Take a video, it's going to be probably 200 kilobytes at least depending on the size and duration. An image, sure, 30 to 100 based on size, et cetera. For these little bits of JavaScript, you could probably prefetch everything for a pretty complex site in less than 100 kilobytes. A simple site, you know, what, 10 or something. That's one way to do it. Just prefetch everything all at once. And now everything's already in memory. When you click the button, it'll parse and execute immediately. There'll be no delay. And if your network is unstable, doesn't matter. It's already there and it's cached in a service worker is what we use. But the question is, what if you want it to be faster than that? Like, what if you actually could determine that it's an e-commerce page, and at the top of the page is an add to cart button? And that button's really important. You want people to see it. And if they're trying to smash that button, that button should work right away, if at all possible. And down below, let's say you have a reviews widget. What we ideally want is we want the fetching to be prioritized so that add to cart button is fetched immediately. Page loads, add to cart's ready, right? And then all the other review stuff, the stuff lower on the fold, et cetera. So that's where we have a couple different strategies here. What we want to do is speculate what's more important than others. There's a few heuristics here, and one that we have coming, I think, is the most interesting. But one is just what type of event is it? Is a click more important than a mouse enter? Is a blur and focus event more important than a form submit? We have essentially an ordering of what events are probably most important. After that, we look at position. So yeah, things higher on the page generally should load faster than things in the footer. And so we will prioritize based on position. And there's a few other things in this. And then what we will do is we will actually pass some important information to the bundler. So if we find that, let's say every time you run the button click, the add to card button click handler, it also has a dependency. We will bundle the dependencies and we'll do it in a smart way. So we can see the whole graph, we can prioritize the graph and we can make smart bundles. So you're not always loading tiny pieces of cross-multiple files, but it's grouped like you optimally want. And where we're going with this is what we really want to do, and I think this was proven by a really cool project by Minko Getchev of the Angular team, who made this project called Guest.js, which the idea was, let's hook into your Google Analytics, and let's look at the paths people take through your website, and let's prefetch pages based on what they tend to go to next. So people land on your homepage, and they all then go to the shop page then we know that from the data, that's the best next page to prefetch. So it's at a page level rather than a point of interactivity.
0: That's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. I think it's been in beta forever, but it works. I don't know why he has not taken it out of beta or maybe I'm making that up and it's out. But that's what we want as well. And so with Quick, the same idea is, and we're testing this on our own site and our own stuff now, is let's collect user analytics. And if we are... If it is the case that everybody tends to click the add to cart button first upon or most upon reaching the product page, let's prefetch that with the highest priority. Maybe the search bar is the next highest priority and we prioritize accordingly. That stuff can be done offline and fed to your bundle, bundler and that's the idea of it.
0: So between, let's say strategy A is like the OG way of maybe event and, and structure based and strategy B is using Mingo's um, new framework he's developing in analytics space. What In the diff between method A and method B, do you think has already been identified and will be continued to come to light and be identified that maybe we could look at and learn a little bit about how we structure the websites and what we think is important versus what actually is important? (laughs)
1: Yes, that's a good question. The short answer is it's too early to tell definitively. So we need a little bit more time to collect the data and run the test to say, okay, let's test the, the dumb way, the completely make guesses way against the smart way, quote unquote, using real data. The reality is the dumb way, again, I'll put these in quotes because let's whatever. The dumb way is going to be lower lift. You don't need any analytics to run, you don't need any back end service going on, you don't need anything. So that's easy peasy. The big question is exactly what you asked is the smart way, how much better is it to make it worth have to have it this like offline, this analytics to store, to query and load into the bundling process. So far, we found the process is actually not complicated. It's very simple. We might provide an API or something open source. It's not something we're trying to monetize. We just want people to be able to run their applications as fast as possible. But yeah, we're going to try to make that as simple as possible, measure the difference, and then be able to recommend, is the smart way the better way? And if so, who's it for? Maybe it's the better way for Amazon, but for your personal blog that gets two visits a day, maybe it doesn't matter. (laughs) It's up
0: to you. Now, this is a, a highly analytical and quantitative process, it sounds like. You have a pathfinding method and, and quantifying these routes that you take. We don't have time to go into detail necessarily about all these methods, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it does sound very quantitative and you're really defining a structure by which you can make these evaluations.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is. It's actually really interesting, the data format of what we save in the database and then use SQL query off of. And that's the biggest question is how do we make it as simple as possible so that people can host this anywhere? Right now we use BigQuery because we use BigQuery for a lot of things internally. You can do really complicated analysis with BigQuery, which is awesome. Not everybody uses BigQuery. So how can we make it so that it's it's as effective yet simple as possible so it just slots into their stack? Or can we provide something you can spin up on your own AWS using things that are out of the box.
0: You recently had a, another post come out about using AI to generate pages from components. A little less quantitative, but could you talk us through a little bit about what you're working on with the team?
1: I love this one. So this is something, like, I just did a blog post comparing types of visual editing. Like, on one extreme, is just edit buttons. That was recently announced by some big people. And then you have, like, live previewing. Then you go deeper into, like, full drag and drop with your components. And then also no code. Create anything from scratch. You don't need a component for everything to you know, actually build and deploy something on your site. Like we talked about Meta even does in a cool way as well with Instagram and Facebook and their other apps. What's interesting is when you have this JSON format that can render out anything to any front end, any framework, native app, whatever, and then you could train an AI on that, then you can actually just start asking questions of the AI. So the first thing we released a while ago, or not too long ago, a few weeks ago, was just ask for anything you want, and it'll be generated. Give me a homepage hero that has two buttons. One is a primary CTA, one's a secondary CTA. It says this, and then it it looks like it would be on jcrew.com. And then you hit it and just bam, it's generated. And you can hit publish and it's live on your next JS app you know, and a minute if you wanted. But what's cool is then you could go in and tell it to edit things. A fun one to do is click on the hero and we have a keyboard shortcut, command O, and just say, translate it all to Spanish. And then cool, it's all translated to Spanish. Or you can change things. You could say, this is too dark, make it lighter. Or you could say, add a third button and make this the most primary button. I have a whole video where it went to depth. But it's really cool. You can just generate whatever you want and then you can ask it to edit however you want. And the idea there is, you know, Two things that are hard when it comes to still building, even if visual. One is designing still hard. Even if you have good components, knowing how to compose those components into a good way, make sure to use these props for this versus that is not easy. And if AI could just do it for you, fantastic. And second, using a responsive editor has a learning curve. So if you want to use Builder in a super advanced way, it can be a lot easier to just say what you want and have the AI do it for you or say what you want changed and have the AI do it for you, and then to actually learn how to use the nuances of the drag and drop editor, especially as you're just dipping your toes. So we're really excited about AI and how we can have this, this JSON intermediary that we can interface with the AI. You can use that to create all new things, which you can either with Builder hit publish and deliver to your live sites and apps over an API. So no deploys, no code changes, it's just there in whatever region you decide, or because of how our code gen works, or you can just generate code. So connect your components, ask for the most awesome homepage ever, tell AI to change it however you want, and then just export to code and paste into your code base. You do whatever you want. It's pretty cool.
0: So I, I think one big takeaway I'm hearing from you, Steve, here is your mitosis endeavors and using this JSON representation, coming back to, it's full circle, man. We're coming back to JSON again. It's a, a really strong representation to communicate a component sort of language to the AI. And when you say train, do you mean you're priming it with these statements and getting it ready? Or do you work with finely tuned models through a provider? Or do you really train your own LLMs from scratch?
1: <laughs> That's a good question. We've gone down all paths, training, fine tuning and clever prompting and we use a mix of multiple things today but actually with the latest developments of llms where we're starting to go towards the most which is actually the most simple way is through generating most of the stuff through prompts passing to llms like gpt 3.5 turbo and gpt4 those actually work shockingly well and so if you just provide some examples some background some context and ask it to output it, that works. And the other thing we found actually works as a huge advantage to these models that are pre-trained on massive code bases and React is everywhere, is because Mitosis can parse React code JSX to JSON, we've actually now adopted just using React as the basis. So these days, the simplest and best models that we found to be impactful is we literally just asked the AI, give us a React component for here's all the criteria, it generates a React component, we parse that to the JSON, and then it's imported into the Builder Visual Editor, which can then output to Svelte or Quick or whatever you want. And then the way we found to make the custom components designed with my components work is we just provide the type interface. So we convert what we know about the components to a, a TypeScript interface. And we basically say, here's the components you can use, and we add some meta information so it quote-unquote understands what's available, and then blam, it'll generate new stuff off of it. It's pretty cool.
0: Very, very neat. And so if people want to get started, they can head over to Builder and check it out.
1: Yeah. Builder.io. You could sign up for free. You could check out our pages. We have this interactive playground that I just built out that uses web containers. You don't even have to download anything. You can just play with it all in the browser and and see if you like it.
0: And Steve, if people want to keep up to date with you and things you're posting about and talking about, do you have a Twitter or Blue Sky?
1: Yes, I have Twitter, Blue Sky, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, all that stuff. And it's always the same. I have a very hard to remember username, but it's always available on every platform. It's Steve8708.
0: (laughs) Steve, it was a pleasure having you and talking about Quick AI and how you stepped into the field and the problems you identified.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I had a blast.